Hello and welcome to the VentureForth Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Mahavutivani. We'll be chatting with some of the most interesting founders, startups, and VCs about the experiences that led them to where they are today, what they're currently working on, as well as the journey ahead of them. On today's show, I've got Eileen Carey, who is the founder and CEO of Glassbreakers, an enterprise SaaS company focused on supporting diversity and inclusion as a core business function. Glassbreakers connects employees with resources, mentoring, and a community of peers making a difference to their enterprise customers' bottom line today. Diversity and inclusion is top of mind, especially with recent developments in administration and policy, so I'm really interested in hearing her perspectives. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> I'd love to start by hearing a little about your background and what inspired Glassbreakers. Sure. So Glassbreakers originally spun from a business plan I created on an MBA study tour of China. Uh, while I was at Citigroup, I was doing my MBA at night, um, and we were assigned a task of create a new business. You know, you're going to China for six weeks. You know, what business would you start? Um, I decided to do an ethnographic study while I was in China of very senior women in the workforce to understand what their roles were and what gender balance was like in China compared to the United States. Uh, at the time, I was thinking of working in Hong Kong or moving to San Francisco at the end of my MBA, and I was at Citigroup. Um, so I wanted to know what would work be like for me if I was a woman in China. I was shocked because women in China seem to have a much easier rise to power than they did in the States. Um, but my business plan was, why don't we create a LinkedIn, but for ladies in high power positions in China. And I was really passionate just about that idea of, of connecting um, people uh, who maybe were the only ones on their team. That was noticeable. So I was connecting with like SVPs at like Google and The Gap in, in China, uh, and they still felt like they were the only one on their team. I also worked at City uh, in the Global Public Affairs Department, so I got to understand a lot about our diversity strategy and all the amazing things that we were doing and the budgets that we were putting aside for pretty big initiatives with hiring for veterans. Um, I was in the Women's Employee Resource Group. I loved being at City because I felt like they were investing in my future. However, I like technology more. So I moved out to San Francisco, decided not to go to Hong Kong. And uh, I met all these guys starting cool startups, and they had pretty dumb ideas. And <laughs> I thought, I could do that. I could start a company. What problem would I want to solve? Uh, I've always been very passionate about activism and about social justice and about equality in the workforce. I've always had a ton of confidence. I've always had a lot of opportunities. I am unique. Not many people have had the same opportunities I've had. So I thought, well, if mentorship was key to my success, how could I make that more democratized? Like that original business plan in China, how could I connect people who were alone? How could we take the idea where LinkedIn was this professional networking site and apply that to underrepresented groups, people all over the world who might feel like they're the only ones? So that was kind of the beginning of Glassbreakers. I thought of the name, I bought a domain, and then I rewrote an entirely new business plan uh, in 12 hours in January 2014. So I started the company about three years ago. So what is Glassbreakers and how does it work? Sure. So Glassbreakers is an enterprise software solution used for employee inclusion. Some people think of employee engagement tools like Yammer or Jive. Uh, inclusion's different. Inclusion is that impactful moment where you make people feel like they belong. So a 
key critical piece of inclusion in the workforce is employee resource groups. So the Women's Network, Parents Network, Latino Network, Asian American Network, 90% of the Fortune 1000 have employee resource groups. Glassbreakers supports employee resource groups, um, scales them so that they're global, provides collaboration tools for employee resource group leaders, and we also have a mentorship feature which allows employees at any place in the org, they don't have to be in an employee resource group, to connect with other people inside a big company based on their professional interests, the communities they may be in, or their personal interests. So that includes if you're affected by autism, if you're an AA, if you're the parent of a special needs child, or maybe you're just into uh, SQL and you're an athlete and you went to MIT. Um, we have an algorithm that'll just connect you to create incredibly data-driven interpersonal relationships. And then the really incredible product that we've built on top of all of this are the analytics tools that we're able to service to chief diversity officers. So employees can safely identify without the employer having any access to the individual data. This protects employers from liabilities. We anonymize and aggregate that data so that companies have a better understanding of their workforce. So I read that Glassbreakers started off as a consumer product and building communities uh, uh, with regular users. At what point did you decide to convert to focus on the enterprise? Sure. So I have a background in high-level PR. So the idea of Glassbreakers being a consumer product is not necessarily the truth. Before we ever raised a single dime, before we quit our jobs, before we launched a consumer product, we closed our first three enterprise customers. I've always been obsessed with enterprise software. I like making money. I like predictable revenue. Uh, I enjoyed working in an enterprise software company before. But in order to be a true enterprise software company, I thought we had to follow the route of like box or Yammer, you know, start with a consumer product, get people to love it, bring it into the enterprise, use that as a sales tool. But I didn't think that with an idea for a consumer product, we'd be able to fundraise. So closed three enterprise contracts, said, give us seven months, we'll build it. Within those seven months, launched a consumer product to build it. Uh, consumer product did very well. We got a lot of users. 80% of the Fortune 500 had employees that used our consumer product. Uh, they brought us in, we got more sales leads. And then the three enterprise customers we had been working with um, weren't as big as the ones that we could score. So we pivoted into communities when we realized that the mentorship SaaS product was cool, but there was a much bigger opportunity with Fortune 100 companies if we could solve for employee resource groups as well. So you mentioned that you have raised money at this stage. And considering that it's a relatively new category, um, was it difficult to do so? And, and how much have you raised today? Yeah, it was incredibly difficult. I think fundraising is hard for everyone, um, but we've raised about two and a half million, I guess, today, as of today. I So I think what's different for, um, so there's first time, I, I'm a first time founder, I'm also a woman founder, and I am selling a product that has zero com competitors and an entirely new market. So uh, fundraising is different for people like me. And I'm not alone. I've got a lot of other founder friends who are in similar boats. It's more of like a casual fundraising. So casual fundraising is more of a sliding scale where um, I've got some friends who, you know, just do a round out the gate, you know, raise 2 million seed. They got an idea. They've got some product person. They were, you know, they went to the right schools, whatever. That was never going to be my case. That was, it was never going to be easy for me no matter what I did. 
So, um, you know, over the course of two years, we've raised over two and a half million dollars. But again, we started out fundraising with three very big enterprise customers and a lot of traction on the consumer product. And then over the course of last year, we also netted some real revenue and some even bigger enterprise customers. And we launched with those enterprise customers. That's awesome. And there are founders tackling diversity with HR software, some with education, others with reporting. What is your approach and why did you attack it this way? So I believe in the customer, right? You, um, The whole point of going into business is to build relationships with people that you want to be friends with for the rest of your life, right? Like that's the whole beauty of enterprise sales is you create relationships with individuals. Chief diversity officers are some of the coolest, um, most important people in America, they have this macroeconomic impact that completely changes people's lives. The work that they do is so complex. It is fascinating. And I just knew I wanted to make software to support their needs. We can't solve the problems for diversity. We're not trying to. We're just trying to make scalable software for chief diversity officers to support what they need to do to hit their business goals. That makes a lot of sense. And so much has been made about diversity in the workplace over the last couple of years. Why is it an important issue? So, I mean, it's an important issue because companies that don't address it will fail. So the the diversity industry has been going strong since the 70s. The banking industry and the consumer packaged goods industry are two of the leaders in it. That's because they're building companies to last another 100 years If you care about retention and you care about longevity and longitude, you need to invest in a diverse workforce that represents your market-based, right? And so as the world has become more global, right, which is another macroeconomic trend, it, in effect, our leadership in the multinationals, the Fortune 50, need to represent the global audience. So I think it really just comes down to um, the financial returns and the obvious impact of creating a leadership team or workforce that represents your customer base. What is the current state of that world of of diversity and inclusion, and what are companies doing wrong today? The companies that do it best usually don't talk about it Mm -hmm. because it's a competitive advantage. Uh, A company, when we look for our customers, we get a lot of inbounds. Uh, We don't have a salesperson. We've uh, never had to do outbound marketing or whatever because, again, we're the only product on the market. But when we get an inbound, we try to qualify it. And is this, is this customer going to be right for us? For us, we look for companies where the chief diversity officer or chief inclusion officer reports directly to the CEO, to the board, when they have a department of about a dozen people, when their business objectives are very much tied to um, really global trends and needs in their workforce, when the compensation structure of heads of business and heads of departments within their organization are also tied to their diversity and inclusion uh, analytics. We're a retention product. We're not a recruiting product. That's where a lot of people are really screwing up this space, is they're focused way too much on the pipeline. The most diversity in any company is at the bottom. It's when you get to the top that things change. If you cannot keep and retain and promote talent that is um, not the same, right? If you, No matter what business you're in, if it's all homogenous at the top, it could be all women, all men, it could be you know, all white people, it could be all Native Americans, it could be all Chinese, if, and you're selling to a global audience, you're going to mess up along the way. You're not going to see these gaping holes of market share. So companies that are too focused on recruiting PR partnerships 
are completely missing the point. You really need to be really focused on your retention and your talent development of the underrepresented employees that are going to have the highest impact on your revenue. So you mentioned that you don't have any salespeople, but you do have some Fortune 500 customers. And I'm so I'm assuming that you're doing most of those sales. And so selling to the enterprise can be a long, grueling, and, and expensive process, but you, you've got some really great customers. Can you tell me about your experience and, and how you were able to get your foot in that door and close those deals? I think enterprise sales is a really fun research project. And, and so that's how I approached it, was uh, what are your problems? How can I help solve your problems? Here's what we have so far on the product. And I did a lot of in-depth interviews, so asking the same questions over and over again to the you know same types of people in different types of industries. I became a sounding board right, for them to share their struggles with by making a promise that I would build to support what their problems were. So it really was creating friendships and relationships and investing in each other in our time, wherein I know that the chief diversity officers um, in, in a lot of these companies just don't have technology. They don't have the, the resources. And so by going in there and building those relationships and the, that trust of I'm, I'm in it for the long haul. I know this is going to take you. This is going to take a year. I know that this is going to be a journey, but I'm willing to be on this journey with you. That's how you really close a, an enterprise deal is patience and then making them feel like they are a part of the product being built, that their influence matters. So then after you sign those deals, there's often a lot of security and compliance, privacy and other issues to deal with. Have you found this to be the case with your customers and, and why is security so important? Security is everything. Our company fails if our security is breached. Um, one of the reasons that we're able to work with Fortune 100 companies globally is because of our privacy policies, our security policies, our data retention policies. It is a lot more than just the ways you write code or where you store your data or who you partner with. It's about process and people. So it's little things like 2FA on everything. It's making sure that the whole team goes through security training. It's a lot of checking boxes. So getting cybersecurity insurance, um, getting business insurance, getting uh, insurance on you know if you're the time for something to go down. It's making sure that you have monitoring logs in place. And um, we have insanely in-depth security protocols and packages that we deliver. Our security audits can are usually around 500 questions. We have a few members of the team that can answer a security audit by themselves, but otherwise it's a collaborative process. And uh, it can take from three months to six months, depending on the client and depending on the scope, because we scale a product that is very global and it goes across business units as well. So different legal entities have different security policies. Did you know all of that going in? One of our customers, our first major enterprise customer, has one of the toughest information security tests in the world. And before we started building the enterprise product, we got their specs for what it was going to take to pass their security. And there's another customer who, again, very big, big, big customer that gave us their security specs a year in advance and said, you have to build for this if you want us to be your partners. And so it was that type of trust, again, of like those relationships that we had with the chief diversity officer where they gave us all the clues and they said, here are the specs and here's what you have to do. And so we just built for them. And once we built for that particular customer, we could pass any security audit because they are the toughest. So it sounds like they, uh, they have similar goals across uh, organizations, at least in this chief diversity officer role. So I guess the million dollar question then, is Glassbreakers working and how are you measuring that success? 
Yeah, so um, right now we're in the early stages. So it's early adoption, um, engagement, retention of the product, user stories are really important because the value of our product is the retention of our of our user base. Mm-hmm. Our product uh, at minimum begins at about 150k uh, annual license and can go up to about a, a million dollars in ARR. The cost of not losing four SVPs that represent a, a person not in the org is much more expensive than implementing Glassburgers for a full year. So if the value add is very simple. If we can make employees feel included, especially the ones that are the most at risk to leave, uh, if we can mitigate the cost of discrimination lawsuits, so there are 88,000 discrimination lawsuits in America every single year, 25% of them settle for over half a million dollars. Uh, one of the chief diversity officer's roles is to mitigate the cost of uh, those suits. How do you do that? You get people to stop being discriminatory. In order for people to stop being discriminatory, you have to create communities, right? You have to make people feel like they are included into these groups as well. So with Glassbreakers, anyone can join these different communities, right? Anyone can feel included. So we're measuring our success on our meaningful relationships formed on Glassbreakers is for employee resource group leaders. Does our product make their jobs more easy? Is productivity increased in all the other areas of their business? Does being on Glassbreakers and we can do this because we have uh, anonymous polls within the product, make you feel like you can be your whole self at work. And those are touch points that right now companies can't really measure. So we're, we're new and, and for us, success is regaining that trust with our partners to continue to build out for the next couple years with them. So you have some big, hairy, audacious goals, both for, I think, yourself and, and also the business. What is the one thing that you can influence over the next six months that will make your company massively successful? And then how do you think about making the company a long-term business? So I think the one thing that will ensure our massive success is the scalability and the launch of our platform. From uh, Right now, we have tenants that have about five to 10,000 employees out of their workforce in the product. We'll be rolling out our product to 77,000 employees in one tenant. So it's I think if we do that right, we go from 5,000 to 20,000 to 77,000 in one company, that will ensure, our, uh, I mean, A, it's a huge contract. B, it's, we'll demonstrate that we can do this, you know, that we're a little startup that actually can support that many users, period. Um, but we're doing that across 20 different tenants. So Incredible. I don't know. I'd say, I'd say that's the, the success thing. Right. So you mentioned uh, your customers are organizations with 10,000 plus employees. Is Glassbreakers right for com- uh, organizations with less than 10,000? Not yet. I think we have one customer that's 5,000. They're an edge case. There are plenty of companies that are over 10,000 employees. So I think for the next couple of years, we'll be focused on that. But in the future, we do plan to launch some sort of SMB product. The first couple customers we had were smaller. We're, around, we're under 10,000. Uh, the reason it didn't work was because diversity and inclusion as a core business function wasn't really fleshed out yet there. They didn't really understand what to do. Right now, we just have a lot more to learn from our customers, from chief diversity officers who've been in the business for 20 years, who are at scale, than partnering with firms that are just figuring it out, you know? So until we have more of a knowledge base of how to help them figure it out, I think that, you know, for now, we'll be mainly focused on the enterprise. What sorts of things worry you, uh, you most about being a founder, uh, and actually particularly a, a solo founder? Um, management. 
I think that's what scares, it worries me the most is, am I being the best manager I can be? I know when I am screwing up. I know when I'm not setting goals for everyone. If I see an employee struggling, if I can't make time for them, that really keeps me up at night. Um, it's people and making sure that everybody is given the best advantages and opportunity to do their best work. And I don't want to be a burden and I don't want to get in the way of anybody doing what they have to do. So I think that's my, my biggest concern and my biggest worry is my being a good manager right now and how can I be a better one? You've been on both sides now on the consumer side and, and now on the enterprise side. What are sort of some unique lessons that you've had as an enterprise SaaS company founder that may be unique? Yeah, I I wouldn't want to build a business on consumer. I enjoy relationships. I enjoy sales. I enjoy predictability. I enjoy process. I think that consumer products need a lot of capital to scale. I think that there's a lot of logistics involved. I think that sometimes consumer products are hindered by uh, local ability, which means you're focused on one market. Maybe it's the San Francisco I market see. or it's the American market. Uh, I've always been raised in a very international household. I've always been drawn to global economics. I love enterprise software because it just has so much global scalability. So it wouldn't drive my passion if I weren't working in a global macroeconomic sense. And that's not, you know, some consumer products, sure, they're very global. Uh, we had our consumer product, we had users all over the world, but it's different than when you're working with a company that's Japanese and you right. know for a fact that your users are going to be in Japan than something that, you know, you can't go market to the Chinese audience if you have a consumer product. I guess my last question before we jump into the sort of quick fire get to know you round uh, is on scalability, especially internationally. Is Glassbreakers an international product today? Yes. So right now in our enterprise, we have users in over 70 countries, I believe. There are 102 unique languages spoken by uh, employees on Glassbreakers. 35% of employees on Glassbreakers have tagged themselves as English as a second language. Wow. That's, which is cool. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. there's um, We have a, a huge user base in South America and India. So yeah, our product right now is very cool. It always has been, but now it's cool because we can. it's not Google Analytics telling right. us that it's global. It is the enterprise product when they are at a company pinpointing it. And another really powerful thing about that is on Glassbreakers, employees can identify, again, safe, secure, completely private way as um, you know a person of color, as ESL, as LGBT, as trans, as a widow. People are able to identify as LGBT on our product in countries where it is illegal to be gay. But because they work at an organization that supports um, the LGBT community, uh, they can safely and securely be themselves and be a part of a global LGBT network, even if their own borders say that that's not possible. Right. And I guess security and privacy are of utmost importance, particularly in those cases. I and mean, if you were ever to get hacked and someone were to be uh, have that information out there, that be that could be potentially very dangerous. That's why we take security so strongly at Glassbreakers. And it's also why, you know, we've been flying very under the radar and we don't really discuss what we actually do that often since last year. Once we made the pivot and realized just how important our product was to people and to the enterprise, we really try and just downplay how how intense it, it really is. <laughs> actually, that's one thing I, I forgot to ask, actually, and uh, I promise this will be the last question on this thread, is you had a background in, in PR. Mm -hmm. And 
I don't think I've ever met a founder who's been better at getting PR and coverage than than I have for you. I mean, you're amazing at getting uh, press for your business. Can you tell us how your background influenced your ability to spread the word about Glassbreakers? Yeah. So my background, I um, I was a high-level publicist for 10 years before I started Glassbreakers. So I worked at um, Citigroup, Thomson Reuters, Mark Monitor. I took on a number of uh, side projects, helped launch a nonprofit, did a big Kickstarter campaign. And I was friends with journalists and media from all the coasts in the UK and Asia. So I had a very strong background in media relations and in high-level corporate communications, which meant when I got to do my own PR, it was going to be super easy. Um, you know, if I could if I could do PR for my friends, like stupid product launch, I could do Glassbreakers PR, no problem. <laughs> so uh, when I, I started the company, um, a lot of the stories that you may have read about diversity in tech, that was me. It wasn't about Glassbreakers. Wow. Um, so about six months before launch, I started planting. So it's called, um, like you back channel, you source. I'm a, I'm a source for lots of journalists still, um, though it's not about us. Though, um, it's like an expert or... So with journalists, it's um, I'm friends with a lot of journalists. Just I was a writer also, right? Uh-huh. And if, when, if you're in comms, you're a publicist, or you're a journalist, if you just have a passion for writing and for telling truth and for getting stories out there, then you have a lot of synergies with people who are just about making sure that um, right is being done in this world. So yeah, I was helping uh, some journalists uh, figure out stories, learning more about what was happening in diversity and tech, understanding who were the real key players, who was doing things right. So I was creating a bunch of noise about the space before I inserted myself as a product that could help solve it. Very interesting. Yeah, it's if anyone watches Scandal, it's uh, <laughs> like Olivia Pope, if she was going to launch a startup, I guarantee it would be everywhere. So you just, you know, publicists do make good, good CEOs because in a lot of ways you have to tell a story, you have to write well, and you have to be able to get marketing without spending any money. And so that was a big value add for us. And it saved us a ton of money is that we've never really had to spend anything on marketing or PR. Awesome. Well done. Uh, so I'd like to move on to our get to know you round, uh, capped off by an opportunity to plug anything that you like. To start off, what is your favorite book? Okay, so my favorite book of all time is uh, Sylvia Plath's Collected Poetry. The book I am reading right now that I love is How to Murder Your Life by Kat Marnell. It's funny. Okay. It's a, she's like the, she's uh, Rolling Stone calls her Hot Bukowski. If you like Charles Bukowski, I don't know that reference. He's a he's a poet. Okay. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so most entrepreneurs I know, and I know this is true of you as well, have very little free time. If you actually had time to spare, how would you spend it? Yeah. So I I do um, a lot of time management stuff. Uh, part of being um, strong and successful is making time for things you love. So in my spare time, I like to write. Um, I've always loved to write, but um, it's something that I'm, I'm really passionate about, whether it's about business or about other things. And then I do a lot of volunteer work. I get a lot out of giving back to the community. Uh, we're based out of Oakland. There are so many amazing nonprofits in Oakland. There are so many ways to give back to the community in Oakland. There are amazing um, homeless shelters for teenage youth. So if I have an extra Saturday or um, I come, I, I volunteer at hackathons a lot. Uh, I really just like to use my spare time to give back to uh, a community and an ecosystem that's given me so much. What is the last thing that you taught yourself to do? Product management. (laughs) 
I, uh, I basically spent the last nine months, uh, 10 months teaching myself all about product management. I um, had mentors, got really dug in with the enterprise solution. I uh, had to take the PM lead for that. So that has been a journey and a really exciting one. And I have come very far in a short amount of time in the world of um, product management. And right now we're hiring aggressively for uh, product managers and senior software engineers because I know that there are people out there who are much smarter than I am when it comes to product management. Um, so if you go to glassbreakers.co-careers, uh, you can check out some of the jobs that we have. Awesome. We're not at that part yet, but <laughs> we'll get to it again. But definitely, Glassbreak is a great company to work for. And by the way, you get to work out of some beautiful spaces in Oakland. Uh, we'll talk about, we'll maybe plug that one as well. What advice would you give to entrepreneurs who want to start an enterprise or a SaaS business? They better be totally crazy and they better not care about having a Saturday and they need to get rid of their social media and their social life and forget about going to people's weddings and stop caring what people think. The reality is that starting a SaaS company is about relationships with your customers. It's about hiring great talent. It's about learning entirely new skill sets like customer success and support. And um, you're building these huge divisions in a business at a very small scale. So it takes all of your time. And unlike consumer, it doesn't grow like wildfire. It it really takes a concentrated effort and process and skills. So if you're thinking of starting a company, you need to give 190% and not think that you're going to have some like casual time for a life on the weekends. Maybe that's bad advice, but all the SaaS founders I know and I know well that have gotten to that next step, uh, the first four years, they really gave it everything. I'd like to give you this opportunity to plug anything that you like. Yeah, so uh, we work out of the Cape Horror Center for love Social Impact. I love this place. They have amazing events here. So if you go to the uh, Cape Horror Center for Social Impact, Google it, check out events. They have hackathons here. I love to volunteer at hackathons. They have uh, a Level of the Playing Field is a nonprofit organization at the Cape Horror Center that does incredible work. If you're looking for interns, hook up with Level the Playing Field Institute. Uh, they have a scholarship program called Smash Scholars that helps get under represented students in high school into computer science and then it puts them through college and we have an incredible smash scholars and intern so um, i will plug smash scholars and the cape Horse center and level the playing institute as things you should all check out especially if you're looking to connect for great talent in the bay area eileen it's been such a pleasure talking to you today and thank you so much for sharing your story glassbreakers is doing incredible work and it's been awesome seeing you grow throughout this journey and I'm really excited to see it just continue and evolve and grow and be something amazing. Thank you so much again for being on the Venture Forth podcast. And that was Eileen Carey with Glassbreakers. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe to the Venture Forth podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. You can also follow at Venture Forth Pod on Twitter for our latest updates. As always, I'm your host, Joe Mahavutivani, and thank you for listening to the Venture Forth podcast.